Welcome to Careers Evolve, the podcast for women where we talk about pivoting, opening doors, and breaking barriers in your career. Our careers evolve as we do, so let's talk about it. I'm your host, Dr. Monique Johnson. Now let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Careers Evolve podcast with Monique Johnson, and I'm here today with yet another guest. I'm here with Dr. Erica Boone. She is the director of the NIH Division of Loan Repayment. In this role, Dr. Boone is responsible for administering and providing leadership for the NIH loan repayment programs, as well as representing NIH on matters related to the operations, policy development, and evaluation of the LRPs. Prior to this position, Dr. Boone served as a health scientist administrator in the Office of Science, Policy, and Communications at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, where she developed and targeted science-based publications, outreach initiatives, and other activities to educate a variety of audiences about the drug use, abuse, and addiction. Dr. Boone's academic background includes a BA in biology from Talladega College, HBCU, and a PhD in biobehavioral health from the Pennsylvania State University. And originally I said I wasn't going to read all of that, but I (laughs) did anyway, because she's just so impressive. I didn't want to cut her short or slight her in any way. And that is actually how we know each other from Penn State University. And that was, ooh, a lot of years ago. Yeah, more than 20. (laughs) More than 20, we're dating ourselves a little bit. Actually, I believe we met through the, a summer program. I think you were there for a summer program, and I was a counselor for one of the summer programs. That's the first time I believe I met you. Yes, I was doing um, a summer internship, and it might have been through Mark. I don't remember. I might have been through Minority. It used to be called Minority Access to Research Careers. It's not called that anymore, um, but it's still called Mark. But I was a part of that program. And I was doing some internships because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do after undergrad. Okay. Well, we'll just jump right in and have you tell us a little bit about your career story. So for those of you who've not listened to Careers Evolve podcast, this is a podcast that is geared towards women and women of color specifically. I wanted to amplify their voices. There are so many women that are doing great things in their communities and in their careers. And so... That's what this is all about. And I wanted to amplify Dr. Erica Boone today. So she's going to share some of her career story with us. Um, Yes. So going back to when you met me, I was an undergrad and I did two summer internships at Penn State before I decided to into grad school there and pursue a PhD in biobehavioral health. And my training was in the areas, as you said, substance abuse and addiction. I chose to go to graduate school there because when I came there as a summer student, they didn't treat me like a summer student. They treated me like I was a member of the laboratory. And we have a person in common who was also a Black female in that program when I came on as a graduate student, Melanie Cook. So she was there during my second internship. And she literally treated me like I was a grad student. And literally one day when I almost passed out because we, we had animal models that we were using in the lab and I had to dissect part of that animal and I thought I was going to pass out and she was like girl if you don't go over there and sit down and catch your breath and get it together (laughs) 
And from that moment on, I was like, okay, I got it because she is not. She is not playing. She is not playing because this was her work. She was like, girl, I got time for your histrionics. Okay, so get your. (laughs) So then, you know, it took me a little bit through graduate school because I was taking like 18 to 22 hours in undergrad for all four years. So I, I had a double major. I was burnt out by the time I got into like my third year of grad school. And then I met someone, we had a baby in grad school. And, you know, then we tried to do the family life and completing school. And he was completing his doctorate and then decided that he didn't want to finish his doctorate there at Penn State. So he went on to Clemson. So then I still had that baby that I had to raise, finish my, finish my, my classes, teaching classes at the same time, get my lab work done and get out of there, right? So after the baby, that was kind of like a kick in the butt that I needed to get myself together. And at first I thought to myself, I would just get a master's degree and just move on. I was tired and I was just ready for it to be over. But the one thing that kept me going through and finishing was the fact that I couldn't look into that little face later on and tell him about perseverance and about digging deep when you feel like you don't have anything left if I didn't do it. Because I can make up a lie. He'd never know. Right, right. And he would never know, but I would know. So I dug deep. Sometimes, you know, I had friends, we have friends in common, Christy, Tabitha, Mm -hmm. Sharonda, who were like, okay, on Mondays, I'll take him. On Tuesdays, I'll take Mm -hmm. him. On Wednesdays, I'll... And we did that for a whole year so that I could get finished and they were with an infant and I would come in sometimes and Tabitha would be laying on the floor exhausted because (laughs) she was literally trying to entertain this baby like the whole time I was gone I was like you know Tabitha you don't need to do all that he's an infant (laughs) but literally and truly friendships circles communities helped us get through I mean that is the name of the game throughout your whole life now it doesn't mean that you could do nothing and your networks galvanize around you and help you you know get past something it means that you you're putting in the work other people see it they want to help you and you right. know you kind of finish that you know go across that finish line together and i know that was a long drawn out story no that's okay <laughs> that's a great that's that's what happened right <laughs> that yeah. is the story <laughs> and after grad school i decided i would take a year off because i hadn't spent a lot of quality time I thought with the baby. So I figured that I needed to do that. So we went to South Carolina with his dad and he was finishing up his degree. And by the time six months was done, I think everybody, including the baby was like, you need a job because this ain't working for any of us. (laughs) I was, I needed to do something. I couldn't go to any more mommy and me meetings and no shade on mommy and me, but I needed to do a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I got to start looking for jobs. So I got a postdoc at Emory University in the Department of Psychiatry. And after about a year and a half, I realized that this was not a place that I necessarily wanted to stay because I didn't feel as if there was a place for Mm -hmm. me there. So this is, you know, probably one of the times too in my life where, you know, those imposter thoughts like danced around on my shoulders, not even in my head, they just danced around all over me, you Mm -hmm. know, for that whole experience, because you know, not only was I going into a different area of study, kind of like, I always call it putting more tools in my toolbox, you know, because I'm, I'm building something. So, you know, sometimes you need more tools, right? Right. So right. I figured that I would apply, you know, another area of science to what I already know, you know, in pursuit of using certain kinds of models in my research, because I'm still thinking I'm going to be a researcher, right? When I grow up and being in that new area, you know, I think that 
there are some people in there that kind of took pleasure in me not knowing something right? Oh, well, she doesn't know. This is not her area of study, kind of like thing like that. It was like, no, I don't know because I've never done that before. So why should I know that? Right. So instead of helping me, they kind of like made it like a very difficult situation for me. But there is another woman in a lab around the other side of the building. And she was not a postdoc there. She was a postdoc at University of Illinois, Chicago. And she said, the model that you're using that you're trying to make work here would be perfect in, in my lab you should talk to my supervisor. And I was like, child, I'm not moving to Chicago. <laughs> she told me that for like six months. And I finally said, okay, I'll talk to her. So I talked to um, her, her mentor who was Sue Carter and her area of expertise is social bonding, early life experiences, social bonding, oxytocin, vasopressin. And I thought, you know, what I'm doing right now really does fit well with what she's doing, but I just didn't want to move to Chicago. But I kind of didn't know what I still wanted to do, where I was going to like focus, right, in my right. area. So I, I took the opportunity anyway. And it was a really good experience for me. She was a really great mentor. For the first time, I think she, I really experienced what good mentorship was at that point in time. Not only was she interested in me growing in my scientific area, she also was interested in me and what it was that I really wanted to do and so that she could figure out how can I help her grow because right. I wanted to be happy with her career choices. And, you know, I'm still raising a 10 eight year old at this point. He's no, he's not eight. I jumped ahead several years, um, but I was in at Emory for a couple of years and then in Chicago for probably about three and a half. So at this point, Evan is like nine at this time, at this point. And I decided that I was going to leave the lab and I just needed to leave the lab, right? I was ready to leave Chicago. I had no idea of what I was going to do. I knew I didn't want to be in, in the laboratory anymore. And so I just decided to start applying for jobs at the National Institutes of Health because why wouldn't they hire me, right? I got all right. of this great training, I'm smart, whatever it was. So I just threw my hat in the ring and submitted all these applications. I think I submitted like four applications and five applications. And then I got two interviews and people kept asking me, well, who did you know? And I was like, I just applied, right? And everybody, every time I, they were like, you got, how long were you applying? I was like, I started applying in November and I got a job offer in February. And they were like, who, who did you know? My mom was like, tell them you know Jesus. So I was like, <laughs> That's I know who Jesus. I know. <laughs> but what I didn't realize is that a lot of people didn't come in straight from the lab like that. And as a matter of fact, when I was, I was interviewing, well, I was kind of interviewing people that work there. So I was like, well, what do you do? And blah, blah, blah. And one woman was like, no, we don't hire postdocs straight out the lab. And I was like, oh, okay. So, <laughs> but later on, I met her again when I started working here. And she was like, you know what? I remember you calling me wanting to talk about NIH. And I've been thinking about this for like about probably about two years, how I was like, I could have been more open with her. And I was going through something at the time. And I just was like very short with you, not encouraging at all. I was like, I was thinking that too, because it's like, I see you right now. And this is not the person that I talked to on the phone. She was mm -hmm. like, child was going through something. But you know, I, I had a goal. So I'm like, I'm going to work at NIH. So I'm figuring out how to make this work. And then that's when I got the job in policy at the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Didn't know a thing about policy, right? Not policy development at the federal level. But you know, even when I went on the interview, right? So these imposter thoughts, you know, can kick your butt. 
from time to time because I'm on an interview, right? I've been through the first round of phone interviews and I'm thinking they're never going to call me back. So then I go through the second round of phone interview thinking they're never going to call me back. And then they, they invite me to come to DC. Um, well, the, the um, Rockville, Bethesda area for an interview. And I'm thinking they're never going to hire me. Right. And, you know, cause I'm like, I don't know anything about policy. So why are they going to hire me? But, you know, I went so far as to tell the person who would, that, who would soon be my supervisor, you know, I don't know anything about policy, right? In the interview. <laughs> Honesty. <laughs> that was naivete, right? So she looks at me like, girl. <laughs> That's what she looked at me like. She looked at me like, girl, I know. I read your CV. <laughs> so she was like, this is the National Institute on Drug Abuse. You have extensive knowledge and background and experience in the science of drug abuse in the area that we want to hire somebody in, you know, to be a health scientist administrator. So we can teach you the policy stuff. I don't have time to teach you the science. I'm right. Fine. That's oh. a great point. So once again, I'm thinking, <laughs> but they did. And so I got the job and I spent all my time focused on the stuff I didn't know. Instead of looking at them all as like growth opportunities and learning opportunities, my job was to write, write quickly, write from the perspective of whomever we were coming from. So as you read in the intro, it's like my job was to translate and develop publications, develop toolkits. We even developed a screening tool for, uh, for physicians in office to talk about their patients for substance with, about substance abuse because it was hardly ever discussed, right? And then when you try to tell them about how to do it, they're like, well, we need some sort of rubric. So it was like, okay, we need to develop a tool. So we did. I mean, I did stuff like that too, never thinking you know, about how I was in graduate school, how I could apply the knowledge that I have in order to have a widespread impact. Mm -hmm. I never really kind of thought about that. That was the best job that I had up to that point because I really felt like what I was doing really kind of mattered on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. And I could talk to people about everyday stuff about their life. Like for example, I didn't study you know, tobacco and nicotine, that kind of thing like that. But that was my area when I came in, you know, I went from alcohol as being my area and I focused on that kind of stuff to like, oh, well now FDA is regulating tobacco. So now we need somebody over the tobacco portfolio in this office. That's you, learn it. And so I was like, okay, (laughs) go. (laughs) But you know, grad school always say, if it doesn't do anything else, it teaches you how to locate and utilize resources quickly. That's true. So I just started talking to people in the different offices. We had these huge binders of documents from industry to tobacco industry and from FDA, you know, comparing data and stuff like that. And it was my job to go through all of that. And I was crushed at certain parts because I was like, if I don't do a good job, then that means that I don't belong here. And it means that, you know, if I give them something that I wrote and it comes back and it has markings on it, it means that I don't know what I'm doing. And they're going to think that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not capable, as opposed to not equating that to a learning experience. And just because they have comments doesn't mean that they think, I don't know what I'm doing because they wouldn't have hired me. You know, they would have promoted me if I didn't know what I was doing. Literally, my supervisor sat down with me and said, listen, Erica, and she, she had her hands like this. She said, I talked to you and you're one way. I read what you wrote and it's very timid. 
She was like, I don't need that. I don't need you to be really cautious and timid with that. I need for you to write like you would talk to me about these areas. I need for you to be more bold. I need for you to fully show up in this office because you sit back, you don't say anything, you take notes and you go back and you feel like you have to do all this stuff by yourself and you don't. You're not gonna learn if you can do, continue to do it in this way. And I was like pained when I went back to my office. I, good thing it was lunchtime because I had to go to my car and cry for a second because I took it personally. And I went home and I talked to my mom about it. And my mom said, Erica, she's telling you that she believes in you and she believes in what you're doing and your abilities. And she wants for you to really kind of like stop being so shy and anxious right. about what you're doing because you belong there, you fit there. She told you that and she wants for you to improve. And, you know, since that point, that was one of the real turning points for me. And then I went to this workshop that talked about imposter syndrome. I, I had no idea that's what that was. Mm-hmm. Imposter thoughts, imposter feelings, the imposter. Right. I never heard of it before. I was pissed because it's a whole area of study. People have been talking about this oh, right, right, for yeah. all this time. Yeah, there are I books on it. <laughs> there are books on it. There's research. Yes. I thought it was me. I never told anybody about any of it because I didn't want people to not believe in me. When I could have been talking to people about this stuff, maybe I don't go to my boss and tell, spill my guts about everything. But it's kind of like when you don't know what a thing is, it can be so big and scary and mm-hmm. ominous. But when you think you, you're the only one, you know, you think you're the only person that's experiencing that. When in actuality, you can call that not. thing a thing. Yes. So right. when you can call that thing a thing, it has a name, even if it's rare you still feel like you have some sort of sense of control over it because that thing has a name and now you can develop a plan, right? So since that point and with talking to my supervisor at that point, it was kind of like, listen, girl, you can either continue to go through this scared, wondering when somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, ma'am, do you really belong in this seat? Or you can be the self that you're supposed to be, the self that Mm -hmm. you are outside of these walls the self that you are when you're standing in front of a room talking to people you can either be that chick full-time or you can Mm -hmm. keep surviving instead of thriving and I was like so you stepped into it and there are times when you have to re-step into it yeah you have to re-step into different situations all the time but at least now that I'm like I I know what this thing is I try and then have an executive coach that was worth the money that the federal government paid for me to go there and oh. accept coaching. Oh, that that was a great perk. Some they paid for that. Was it not? And then I took these classes at Brookings Institute, these leadership development classes. They talked about emotional intelligence, another one of those mm-hmm. moments for me. They talked about yada 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 for 15 of those other classes but when they started talking about emotional intelligence I was like what what (laughs) I never never heard of that but it was so relevant and it just smacked me in the face and I think it was because I was at a point in my life where I was ready to accept that I was ready to accept that kind of information I was ready to kind of accept who I was and not be apologetic about it and really kind of put myself out there without that fear, anxiety about someone saying, 
that I wasn't as good as what they they thought I should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When in fact, I'm probably better. Absolutely. I could probably guarantee that I was better than what they thought that I would be. I was probably better than what I thought that I would be in certain situations. But we always focus on those little teeny things. That, right. I mean, if we have a hundred things and five of them aren't really good or aren't really where we want them to be, we focus down on those five. Right, right, right. It's almost like that whole notion of, you know, someone giving you a compliment, you know, 10 people can say something really good. And then one person might say something that might be perceived as somewhat negatively. And that's what we focus on. We focus it, on that. It doesn't matter that all the other well, people, people give you a compliment and you, you totally, you immediately reject it. Right. Discount it, reject it. Immediately discount guilty. I'm guilty of doing that. Why do we do that? And, you know, I stop myself now when I see myself doing that or entering into that, or even like I had a presentation with the NIH director, deputy director, all kinds of directors last Thursday, the night before I was like, (sighs) you know, like, oh my God. But it was like, okay, listen, you're, you're anxious. You know what you're doing. You've done this before. Just go in there and be your regular self. And it's not even like this is the first time I met these dudes because I presented to them last month. So why am I still all anxious about it when he knows you and when he gets on calls with you, he's like, Erica, how's your mom? Because I talked to him, you know, I talked to him about him being on television and my mom saying, you know, he seems like to be a very down to earth, trustworthy guy. So now every time he sees me, how's your mom? Mm-hmm, <laughs> but I was mm-hmm. so nervous that I almost said to myself, because someone was like, oh, who's going to volunteer to do the presentation, blah, blah, blah. And I almost said, I almost kept my hand down. But I said, nope, don't do that. Put your hand up. Mm-hmm. Say that you'll do it. Self-talk. Step into it. Yes. Right. Positive self-talk. Make yourself do that stuff. As my mom said, they can't kill you. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the bum bum bum. So you know, I, yeah, part of my portfolio is what I'm doing right now. When I was a policy officer at National Institute of Drug Abuse, I had a small grant portfolio called Loan Payment Program, and in this program, the federal government supplies money each year to help pay off student loan debt for researchers. Because you know, when you first starting out, you got a big old title. Everybody thinks you're rich. You are not. Right. Mm-hmm. So in your teaching, you've got all these classes, you got you still driving that car from grad school or like I was in undergrad because that car lasted forever. Wow. You know, so it was like you don't have any money like that. People think you're rich and you're trying to pay off student loan debt and, you know, survive. Right. So it means that a lot of the country is losing a lot of innovation. Actually, the world is losing a lot of innovation just because people can't afford to stay in their career choices so they get out and do other stuff especially Mm -hmm. for brown people because a lot of times our parents don't understand what we do you know our Mm -hmm. families don't understand what we do and for some people they are a support system financially for you know other members in their family or Mm -hmm. for their own family so it's like well can you just hurry up and get out or can you get a different job because this one ain't paying you the money that you should be so you don't get to stay in it long enough so you can get to the point where it is paying you 
enough money, you know, for you to stay in. So, you know, we lose a lot of innovation because we're leaking out and going into more lucrative fields. So that's why the federal government set this up. I was like, well, okay, we don't want to lose, you know, the potentiality for this research. So we'll just pay back some of their student loan debt. They stay in long enough for them to get to a point where they can afford to pay their own stuff. And then, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. Well, that's great. Now, do you have to be a graduate student or you have to be in some type of program? You have to, to have, no, actually, they just submit their, their application just like they would for any grant at NIH. So the loan repayment program awards are contracts, slight difference, but you still have to submit an application to NIH. They're still reviewed. You know, you do submit a, a additional paperwork like, you know, like uh, information on your finances, like your student loan amounts and that kind of stuff like that. They weigh that, uh, you know, as well as what research areas you're, you're interested in, what areas you're conducting research. You have to already have your terminal level degree. So you already have to be doctor so-and-so and so-and-so. You don't necessarily have to be an MD. You don't have to be conducting only clinical research or doing clinical trials or any kind of stuff like that if it's in specific, what we consider to be mission critical research areas. And an institute and center says, hey, we, we like the potential of what they're doing. So we're gonna help them stay in and pay back some of this loan debt. It's really transformative for a career. Mm -hmm. If people knew that they could pursue certain career trajectories and didn't have to worry about the loan debt on the other side of that, we have people in this program who owe 500, $600,000. Wow and student loan debt. I don't know if I could sleep at night. Yeah, that's a lot of a weight, stress. And yeah, their MDs, eventually they'll be okay. If you're a cardiac surgeon, you might be okay. But you know, I know some, but that's still a lot. And it takes a long time for you to get to that point where I'm okay, you know, and we can live like normal folks. Um, but you know, I know some PhDs who had like $200,000. One woman had $325,000 student loan debt with a PhD and I was like child I'm gonna lay down on the floor for you and just roll around for a little bit because I don't know how you gonna pay that back yeah yeah, yeah that's a she lot. ended up getting an LR she ended up getting an LRP now they're not paying back $325,000 but they pay back a pretty good chunk you know for her so you know it's it's a program that really makes a difference in the lives of researchers well that's fantastic and and they don't have to be employed by NIH. Nope. There are actually two different programs. So there's an intramural program for individuals who are conducting research at NIH approved facilities. Um, so on NIH main campus or like, uh, um, not NIST, but it has to be um, connected to NIH because it has to be um, biomedically based research. But then you're right, there's the extramural loan repayment program for which I am the director of that one. And you can be at whatever research institution you're at. So you can be at a hospital, you can be at a clinic, you can be at a research facility, you can be at any nonprofit, any nonprofit. If you are at a for-profit institution or you're receiving for-profit research dollars, that's a different story that we kind of got to talk about. But for the most part, if you are conducting qualified research at, an, at a nonprofit, then you're eligible. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. And you've been in that role for? Five and a half years. So I'm itching a little bit, trying to figure out what else I'm going to do when I grow up, what's going to be my next position that I'm going to jump into because it's so funny that you know so often I feel like I'm scared to change or it makes me really anxious but I never do anything like incremental I've noticed that that I always just kind of like go for it and I'm scared going for it right but I still like 
jump into it mm-hmm. and and to other people would be like you just did that all of a sudden but i've been chewing on this and chewing on this and chewing on this because i'm really an introspective person so i have to feel good about the next thing that i'm going into first um but once i bust out i bust out y'all like what, bust what, out. What? yeah that's like me with this podcast i was like i'm just gonna do it I've been talking about it for a while. I'm just going to do You've it. You've so. been chewing on that for forever <laughs> yes. and you run out of excuses. Yes, you do. You do. What? What's your excuse now, ma'am? Why are you not going to do this now, ma'am? So when I talked to a friend of mine and I'm like, well, like when I told him last week, I was like, I'm anxious about this presentation on Thursday. He's like, chick, for real? He's like, I've heard you on like a, give a thousand presentations. I've heard you, you know, talk to all kinds of folks. And now you're nervous about this one. He was like, call me after the presentation done and let me know how it went. So he was like giving me no slack. Right. I'm sure oh, it went very well. It went just fine. He was not trying to hear anything from that imposter. Right. But you, we all have these little moments we where do. we're like, <gasps> we do. But I think it keeps us on our toes too. Right. Because, you know, I I think that in that instance, whatever that thing is that you're doing or that you were avoiding or you were, you were questioning about really means a lot to you, right? So you're going to be at your best because you're going to try to prepare for it. But, you know, I think for a long time, I didn't look at it as, you know, it, it can it can be good. You know, there could be elements of it that can be good. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I'm trying to stay on my toes. I really saw myself as like doing a doggy paddle. So like a duck, you know, on the top, you know, people see the outer thing they see that outer shell but then they don't see those feet paddling as fast as they can underneath and then also you don't recognize that everybody else around you they but those feet underneath that water are doing just like that that's right yeah so we've heard that was a long explanation that was like 25 minutes okay that's okay (laughs) i want to hear about erica the creative so you've shared a lot very eloquently and beautifully about Erica, the researcher, and how you evolved, because this podcast is called Careers Evolve, right? But oh, I want to hear about Erica, the creative, because I know you have some other things to share. Yes, yes, yes. Careers evolve, life evolves. When you were 17, you never thought about being 25 because you thought that was old and decrepit. And then when you were 25, you never thought about 50 because, again, that's old and decrepit. So it's kind of like I'm I, I, I sound like church. I look back over my life and, you know, but I do. And I see these moments where I'm just so proud of myself. And then also mad at myself. It was like, girl, why were you wasting that time being anxious about that instead of really just absorbing it? You know, like I couldn't wait to get out of grad school because I thought it was keeping me from the rest of my life. Right, I couldn't wait right. to get out of the postdoc because I thought it was keeping me from the rest of my life. When life is going on all in the midst of it, and I saw you in grad school, and I saw Melanie in grad school, and I saw other people in grad school, and y'all were living in the in the midst of it, at least it, to my eyes, it looked like you were living in the midst of it, and I felt like I was just trying to survive it and get through but you know moving on to like the creative part I always saw myself as not necessarily just the sciencey part because I always felt like I kind of had a little bit of sense of style about myself but I liked being creative in my own way through my work Mm -hmm. I, I come from a creative family because I feel like science is about creativity and flexibility and thinking and being creative and pulling different things together to make something that wasn't before Mm -hmm. um but as far as like being creative with like my hands and creating what I now 
timidly call art um, because I feel like I'm not an artist because I didn't study that, but do you have to, right? There, there's a whole school of thought on that. We won't get into that one. So I had a friend who was living um, abroad. Her husband works for USAID and she had gotten into metalsmithing. Am I gonna ever metalsmith? I can probably tell you no. But, you know, she showed me some of the simpler things that she made. And I always loved earrings, always loved jewelry and that kind of stuff like that. But, you know, when you're getting ready to go out to stuff and you run to the store thinking, oh, I'm going to go find something to go with X, Y, and Z. And sometimes you just buy stuff because you're like, well, I don't really, you know, like this one, but it's going to do for what I need, right? And you pay way too much for that mug. And then you go home, you're like, oh, yeah, it looks fine. And I was like, I'm tired of doing that. I'm going to learn how to start making, you know, some wired jewelry just with beads, beaded jewelry. So my friend, she was actually been my friend since like middle school. She, she bought me my first little book. She bought me my first set of tools. And she taught me how to do some simple wire wrapping. And I wanted to move beyond wire wrapping. And this was a few years ago. I was making necklaces. I was making bracelets. I was making earrings. And as a matter of fact, we were on Amtrak because I started taking Amtrak when I would travel to go home back and forth to my parents' house because four ninety five and ninety five are a whole witch, right? It's a parking lot for five hours when that drive should take you three hours and 15 minutes. So I got tired of that. So someone was like, just take Amtrak. So I'm on Amtrak. And I'm making stuff because it's it's near Christmas and I'm finishing stuff up for my mom and my sisters because that's in the contract. They have to make the stuff. I mean, they have to wear the stuff that you make just like when your kids made stuff for you. You had to wear that t-shirt. You had to wear all that stuff. So I was finishing up this necklace that I was making out of amethyst for one of my sisters because she loves purple. And this man was like, do you sell your jewelry? And I was like, no, 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 I just, you know, I'm just making this for my sister. He was like, well, you know, my wife's birthday is coming up and I think that she would really like that. He was like, you sure you don't sell anything? And I was like, no, I don't. And my son said, yes, she does. She's gonna be finished with this in a few minutes. So we'll get back to you. So he was probably about 14 at the time. He was my first manager <laughs> and negotiated my first deal. So I, I, that man literally bought that necklace from me and gave wow. it to his wife for her birthday. And that was my first sale on Amtrak, right? So, you know, from that point, I thought, well, maybe I have something, right? And then, so I would make stuff for my mom. And then even when they didn't know that I was coming home or for my sisters, they would have it on. I would come home and they have it on. So I was like, well, okay, but maybe they're just trying to make me feel good. But then my nieces started asking me to do stuff. And teenagers, they're not that nice. So they're not going to be like, let me help her feelings out. They'll be like, "Mm -mm, girl, that ain't it. (laughs) I knew I was onto something then. So, you know, I started branching out because it's like, okay, I want to learn more. I want to do more. So I started doing a lot of market research and then people were into like the leather feather earrings and so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I watched like a thousand like YouTube videos thinking I can do that right so and then I just tried it I made templates and I cut them up and I was like I I can do this yes yes and I've been following you on Instagram and you know you made some uh, beaded bracelets for my husband that I bought I don't know if it was his birthday he still wears them today loves them Loves them. So yes, definitely. I'm just really, I'm really at a point where I'm really trying to truly embrace growth, trying to embrace creativity and really, truly embrace happy, whatever that is and doing stuff that makes my soul feel good. 
And I told somebody else that last week, I was like, I'm trying to practice soul good. Soul, S-O-U-L, good. Good, right. And not do things that don't make, you. stuff can make you happy, you know what I'm saying? But what's that stuff that really feeds your soul, that right, feeds who right. you are? And I don't think we really spend a lot of time thinking about that because I feel like as women in the first place and mothers, everybody else is first. You know, exactly, if there's exactly. a you're on a plane, they tell you put the oxygen mask on yourself so that you can help other people. But half the time we run around here feeling empty, tired, unfulfilled, like we're missing something from ourselves, like we're not giving enough to other people. But how are you supposed to do all of that stuff right, if right. you do nothing for your own soul? Exactly. Yes, we can't serve from an empty tank. So you cannot serve from an empty tank at all, but we're always running on empty because, and it's not a bad thing that we try to give to other people, but we feel guilty when we try to give to ourselves. So I'm proud of you for starting your podcast. Well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. So hopefully it will continue to grow and all of that and get better and better as time goes on. You know, somebody told me there, because I don't do a, and maybe this is, you know, beginner naivete, right? I don't try to figure out what the trends are and then kind of go after that trend necessarily. I figure that if I make stuff that can be trendy, but also like it's stuff that makes me happy and that I put it out there with that intention, then people will be attracted to that. They'll see that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want them to see my inner joy the inner happiness that I have by creating this stuff and putting it out there you know into the world so with your podcast if you keep creating and putting that stuff out there that makes your soul feel good and that you think can you you know be utilized by other people it will grow thank you thank you that is my prayer that is my intention my hope and all of that so I want to ask you one question. Well, actually two questions. You see a long we way. We were talking about your jewelry. <laughs> tell, tell people where they can find your jewelry if they want to take a look at your jewelry. Okay. I'm on um, Instagram and my handle, I think that's what you call it, is uh, Live, Laugh, Be Jeweled. So my, my business's name is called Live, Laugh, Be Jeweled because um, someone was like, why would you, that's a long name. Nobody's going to remember that. I'm like, you know, they can remember Stradivarius. They can remember Live, Laugh, Jewel. <laughs> I'll leave it in the notes as well for the podcast. <laughs> oh, and I also have a website, www.livelaughbejewel.com. And I named it that because, you know, we're out here living, trying to figure out how to live our best life right there are ups there are downs there are successes and there are what we think can be failures in our lives but we're still living the best way we can i figure that you might as well laugh your way through it and you might as well look damn good too right <laughs> be jeweled be jewel baby yes and you definitely <laughs> want to check out her jewelry because it is unique it is exotic it's thank you all kinds of good things, all kinds of goodness, colorful, creative, one of a kind. Yes, one of a kind. Um, so I, I use, it's all handmade. And I, I like to use um, beads that I've acquired through travels. So 
you know, wherever I go, I'm always looking for some sort of artistry, whether it is tapestry, whether it is some sort of fabric, whether it is some sort of bead or some sort of something that I can use for my jewelry, because I feel like that, that gives it that something that's different. Everybody can make one of whatever it is that I tried to do, right? But I try to put something in there different, you know, that people would be like, oh, this is why I like this stuff right here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And before we go, you gave us like so many nuggets. We talked about all kinds of things, imposter syndrome and just uh, all the encouragement and inspiration was just phenomenal. So do you have any words of encouragement or inspiration for just any woman out there that you would leave with, leave us with? Owning, owning yourself and who you are. I'm really trying to just be really authentic and intentional about my energy. And that's sometimes daily because some days I'm, I'm here for it. I'm popping. And on other days, I don't want to hear any of that, right? I've got to pull myself into it. So, but through all of that, I'm really trying to be intentional about my thoughts, intentional about my actions, intentional about my own energy that I'm putting out there and intentional about the energy that I'll accept from other people. It might be because I'm about to turn 50. <laughs> it's like, uh-uh, child, if this is some stuff that I don't really want to do and, you know, is, and I don't really have to do it, why am I doing all of that? I'm just running myself crazy doing some stuff that I really don't want to do. But it's, it's not about being selfish. It's about reserving that energy so that you can really direct it where it needs to go instead That's of just right. giving it out there everywhere. You're really being intentional, you know, about that and being just owning who you are, every bit of who you are and learning from her, embracing her and telling people this is who her is. And loving her. Loving yes. Yes. her, right? Because it's about our growth and it's about grace. I think we just don't give ourselves enough. I grace. agree with you. I agree so, so much. And I want to tell you all that she might be 50, but she looks all of 25. She has not aged. And I know she hears that a lot. <laughs> and I'm past 50. She looks fabulous. Those of you who can't see her. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm trying to try. This is all DNA from Tony Rosetta. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have enjoyed our converse conversation. It has been enlightening. It has been phenomenal. It was so great to catch up with you. Again, we've had Erica Boone, Dr. Erica Boone, and she just shared so many nuggets. I hope that you found it valuable, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon, and please subscribe if you haven't, and please leave us a phenomenal rating and again have a great week and we'll Wait, how do we subscribe to you how, oh, how do, how you, do you subscribe you? yes right so you could subscribe through apple amazon google podcasts podbean and spotify so we are on all of those platforms and i everywhere. hope that you will check us out and leave us a good rating refer to your friends and all of that Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate the support. If you haven't already, please subscribe. If you'd like to learn more about me, please visit my website at 
DrMoniqueCJohnson.com, and that's DR for doctor. Until next time, let's open doors and break barriers.